We're going to kind of press forward. This is going to be part one of part two on something um, that's going to keep us rolling ahead next week. We're going to talk about um, a third bit of this. We're going to cover kind of parts one and two today, and then next week's going to be part three, which is a much more positive thing than what we're going to be talking about this this day. Um, if you recall, what we've done is we've gone through the turmoil of the um, 16th century and the beginning of that Reformation into the 17th and then even partly into the beginning of the 18th century, is that the churches, both Catholic and Protestant, started to much more narrowly define what was right theology versus wrong theology. Um, in uh, terms of, of Catholic doctrine, that meant uh, keeping what they thought was good and right in, in accordance with their tradition um, and basically anathematizing or, or damning anyone who would stand against that doctrine. And that got to be, as we noted, fairly narrow. So I keep coming back to the, the seven sacraments um, just because if you, if you say that there aren't seven sacraments, Right? So if you say one of those sacraments really should be folded into something else or that, that marriage isn't really truly a sacrament or something like that, um, that they say you're not saved, right? which is just so narrowly defining things. Even if it's not to the point of heresy, if we look at something like the Synod of Dort that we talked about last week, where people refer to that as condemning and, and labeling people as heresy, which, which I just didn't, didn't see in the document, um, I don't know if that, that kind of happened elsewhere, but even if that's not the case, and they were, they were basically just saying, we accept these things, and we don't think that these things are right, there is very little tolerance in those churches. So because they're national churches, they've got to kind of really heavily define every little part of their faith. And so even though the Council of Dort was written to say, well, we're not going to anathematize those people, eventually they came back and said, but you can't be in the Netherlands and preaching if you believe those things. You're right out. So, you know, and I don't know if it was called the Netherlands then or Denmark or the Dutch or Holland or there's, they got like 18 different names for one little area of the world. This one area, just get over it. Just call yourselves the low countries and be done. Um, but nevertheless, you can't be there and preach. Take that stuff to Germany or wherever you want to go. So even in these bits that seemed like they were much more flexible and tolerant and not anathematizing everything, um, there was still a fair amount of, of, of intolerance built into those places because of the, the way in which the church and the state ran together. And this was kind of uh, a momentum type thing that the Reformation sort of built into itself. Because again, the Reformation was about authority and the rejection of Catholic authority, but it was also built on doctrine and a fairly specific doctrine and getting back to the truth of the scriptures. So the scriptures are true. We can only believe that, that which is true. And there wasn't, there hadn't been at least at this time, breaks put on that to say, if you're going to reject what scripture clearly teaches, and we say scripture clearly teaches this, then you're rejected. There, there wasn't a sense in which the church knew how to stop that momentum. And so they just kept sort of narrowly and narrowly and narrowly defining things. Um, this was eventually going to lead to a response. And that response comes in sort of three different things. The first two um, are just <laughs> right out of the box, they're bad. Um, and we're, we'll talk about those two things today. Um, 
The third one um, is good-ish. Um, I think in the end, it becomes a, a very good thing when handled correctly. Um, and we'll talk about that, including John Wesley, who is the main proponent of, of that sort of response next week. Um, Today we're going to talk about rationalism and spiritualism. And so for part of rationalism, you're just going to have to hold on for a bit because we'll get to the reason why it's important. But I get to talk about Descartes, and so you're going to be bored for about 15 minutes. So if you, if you didn't get enough sleep this morning, now's nap time, and then you can come back in and I'll get to the, the thing in the end. So rationalism is this, um, basically rationalism and spiritualism are going to be two responses to the dogmatism of the church that are going to have two completely different um, ways of, of handling this very narrow view of things. Rationalism is going to provide people with a type of universalism. And what we mean by that is, the idea is, if we can just think about things carefully enough, everyone can agree on the things that are true. Okay? So that's why it's called rationalism. So anyone who is a rational creature, anyone who's a rational being, should be able to agree with the things we're putting forward. And if you can agree with the things we're putting forward, we can all agree, we can stand in a circle, sing kumbaya, and we can walk forward together. And, and that's clearly not the case for Reformed people, especially when it comes to Scripture, because it's not just about the normal interpretation of Scripture. We all had Scripture, Catholics, Protestants, Reformed, Lutherans, Anabaptists, they all disagree on, on these aspects of Scripture, and so we can't rely upon that. What can we rely upon? And rationalism basically said, you can rely upon reason, okay? Now, Descartes is kind of the beginning of this, Descartes lived at the end, was born 1596, end of the 16th century, lived about 54 years. He was French, so auto automatically uh, we view him with some skepticism. Um, but uh, he, he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, there there uh, exists no more in, in our world the ability to have your hand in as many pies as Descartes did. Even the most brilliant of people get to pick one thing to be brilliant in, and they get to be stupid in everything else. So if you ever talk to a scientist today, and they're like, I'm going to dabble in philosophy, their dabbling in philosophy will be horrid. It just, they don't have the tools for it, and they don't actually know what they're saying. So think of people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like, the guy just, he's perfectly fine as an astrophysicist, but you get him out of the classroom, and he's adult, right? He'll say things like, oh, we're going to celebrate January 1st. It's a, it's a random day of the year where this earth is in a random... Like, no, we do that for other reasons, man. It's not... Sorry. Descartes and Neil deGrasse Tyson, I get excited about. So, anyway. Um, Descartes... He was, he was a physicist, as we would define physicists today. He was a mathematician. He was a philosopher and a theologian. And he actually did important things in every single one of those categories. So there, there is no one today that can quite do that. Physics and math, maybe, um, but, but not in the way that Descartes did. Descartes was really fundamental in a lot of things. Um, so the whole idea of algebra being about letters and not about pictures, a lot of that's due to Descartes. Um, so they, they, medieval mathematicians had always just done everything by geometry. Uh, they didn't do any sort of algebraic proofs, and it wasn't until Descartes' time that that started to shift, and he was a major person in the shifting of that, which I know, I know deep down in your heart you care about. But geometry was really important to Descartes, and so geometry basically is built off of these axioms, and axioms are really hard to define. Um, basically what axioms are are things you can't prove, but you can't deny either. Okay, so it doesn't seem like it, it's hard because you can just say, well, that must be the way it is, but that's the reason why you can't, you can't disprove these things. So he's saying like one plus one is two, okay? 
you, you can't actually prove that. You can. It took Bertrand Russell about 300 pages to prove that in the beginning of the 20th century, but you can't really actually prove that. It's just something you kind of accept as true. And some of you are giving me a look like I can prove it. So I understand that, but that's not really a proof. That's a demonstration of it. Um, and so we basically just assume that these things are true because you can't deny it. You, you don't really have a proof for it, but you can't deny it. That's what an axiom basically means. So a line, you form it by drawing something between two points. Okay. Well, Descartes knows that in, in geometry, you can take these few little axioms that you get in geometry and you can build this entire edifice out of it. So all of geometry it can be boiled down to just a handful of axioms, which is kind of a brilliant thing in and of itself. And Descartes says, ah, but if that works for geometry and truth in geometry, which it ends up not, but that's for another day that we will never get to in this church. Um, what ends up happening is he says, wouldn't that work for truth in general? And so Descartes goes on this little meditation. It's literally written down in his meditations. And his whole idea is this. If axioms are these things that you cannot doubt to be true, let's start there. And, and he sits down and he says, what can I doubt as to the truth of what I see around me? And he very, very quickly just jettisons all of reality. He says, listen, I, I know that it seems like I'm sitting here in this warm chair that I'm writing words down, that I'm looking at a fire. I can feel the heat from the fire. I can smell the wood burning. Um, I can feel the, the chair underneath me. Uh, these things seem and present themselves to me like they're real. But, he says, I also know that I have dreams. And in those dreams, it's quite clear that while I'm dreaming, the dream seemed real. It seemed like those things that were happening were happening to me. I had experiences and I had sensations of them. And, and he says... There's every reason to believe that, that I, I am just hallucinating. You know, if I'm going to doubt it, I can doubt that other people in the room are real because I have dreams of other people who aren't actually other people. They're not real. I can doubt that I'm sitting in a chair because I've sat in a chair in a dream and that chair wasn't real. And so he comes down to this whole idea that, that I can doubt absolutely everything. So no matter where I look, no matter where I go, my senses could be lying to me. He doesn't have an explanation as to how this could be true, but he's simply saying, I can, I can doubt these things. He ends up saying, but there is one thing I can't doubt. Every time I turn around and doubt, there is someone who is doing the doubting. I, if I'm doubting something, I can't doubt that I'm doubting something. You see? There's always this sort of foundation that he comes to where he says, I exist. I can't I can't deny that I'm here because I'm, I'm doing the thinking, which is where the, the Latin phrase cogito ergo sum comes from, which is, anybody? I think, therefore, I am, okay? Which is really famous. And this actually, this little phrase, although Descartes doesn't mean for it to, kind of changes the trajectory of Western civilization. And he doesn't know it when he writes it, but it... it really radically changed. It's interesting, I started reading, um, well, I don't want to say that. So, it starts to change everything, and the reason why is because he starts to center all of, of what he can know to be true about the world in what? In himself. It's not centered on something external anymore. It's centered in him. When it comes to God, um, he's got this really weak proof of God. So, the question that he says, he says, well, 
well, the things that I see and experience out in the world, how do I know I'm not being deceived into thinking that those things are true? And he just never actually answers that question. It's, it's frankly odd, because that's a really interesting question, right? If you're going to play with this thing, you might as well ask, you know, he says, is God a deceiver? And he basically ends up saying, well, no, God wouldn't be a deceiver because he's good. But how do you know that God is good if the only thing you can truly understand is that you yourself exist? How do you even know that God exists? Uh, he basically argues God exists because the thought of God is there, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. But the whole point of this is this. What Descartes does with this one little phrase, I think, therefore I am, is displace the seat of knowledge of every single medieval theologian that ever existed. So where they always began was that God was real, that God had revealed himself in Scripture, and that what he revealed was understandable, good, and true. What Descartes says is, I can't trust that because that is gained through sensual experience. It's gained through me touching the page, flipping it over, reading the page, and what I see. I, I can doubt that. What I can't doubt is that I exist. And this is going to feed itself through empiricism and Locke and David Hume's response and eventually to moral imperatives and Immanuel Kant and stuff like that. So it, it works its way through, and there are challenges to it, and it's accepted. But the idea of reason being the seat of knowledge of our ability to make sense of the world as the seat of what is true becomes foundational for a modern world. You see this in skincare commercials all the time. So in skincare commercials, right, for some reason that always comes up in skincare commercials more than anything else, there's this appeal to like science. See what the little micro bubbles are doing to your skin to keep it hydrated and yet clean and yada, yada, yada. They, they appeal to science and so many commercials appeal to this vague sense of science, but science, is the distillation of basically what Descartes said, right? What can we know as being actually and verifiably true? We can know that because we can reason our way there. We begin with ourselves, we begin with doubt, and then we can only accept what is proven to us. That is basically the core of science. And that leads to us believing that science is the fount of knowledge and the fount of truth and the fount of goodness, which is what the vast majority of people in America probably believe, especially amongst those who are educated. And medievals would look at that and be like, y'all be crazy. That can't possibly be the way that it works. And, and I think that people today look back at people in the, the medieval period, and even, even calling it the medieval period or the dark ages, tells you something about how they view them but friends, they were onto something. There's a reason why rationalism doesn't actually work, okay? So it leads into this, this belief that science can actually lead us into truth, which it can't do. It can in a limited sense, but it can in a full sense. And it also leads into this, this idea of method over everything else, okay? So his whole purpose is to say, listen, and the beauty of this is that it's actually a very simple proof. Although it's, it's got powerful implications that come from it, it's pretty easy to sit there and say, could I be dreaming up everything that I see here? Could, could I be a brain in a vat somewhere, like in the Matrix, where I'm just being fed pictures and fed reality? Could be, right? So you, you can believe that that is true. You can, it's, it's perfectly capable. It's a nice philosophical proof because everybody can kind of join in and play the game, and, and you can come to the same kind of conclusion. So it's got that sort of explanatory reality, but the idea is all you need to do is apply the method. Just keep doubting, 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 and you can follow and get to exactly where Descartes was. Well, this is what science becomes. It's method, right? You learned in high school 
the scientific method. And that was a guarantee. If you did the scientific method well, you would be guaranteed to come out with the truth. This is what ends up happening in a number of Christians as well when it comes to interpreting the Word of God. So what we need to do is follow the right method. If we follow the right method, we will get to truth, okay? This is what German high scholarship did, which just becomes German liberalism. Um, When they came to handle the Word of God, they said, listen, we're going to do this thing called historical grammatical interpretation, and if we do this, we can know precisely what the author meant at any one point in time. What we need to do, we say grammatical historical interpretation, is we need to pay attention to the grammar, the things that are being said, the words that are used, the meaning of those words, how they're being used in context, and then the historical situation that we find ourselves in. And if we pay attention to those two things, we can know exactly what the author meant. No more, no less. And that, what the author means, must be what the text means. And we can, we can find it infallibly, okay? I might not have put it quite that harshly, but that's kind of what they meant. So let's handle that. Let's talk about something like Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verses like 11 through 14 says this. This is Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz. It says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so this is at a difficult time in the nation of Israel, the historical part of this. Difficult time in the nation of Israel. They're being threatened by an external enemy. They need to know that God is still with them. They need to hold fast to the path that they've taken to not look for outside help. They need to know that God is going to be with them. That's the whole purpose of the sign. How do we know that God is with us? Can we have a sign? And Ahaz says, I'm not going to give it. And God says, I'm going to give it to you. Now, if you had a Bible that had footnotes in it, Under the word virgin there, there would probably be a little note that says, this can also mean what? Just a young woman. So the idea of a young woman being a virgin makes perfectly good sense, and it can also mean that. So, So the grammar here might mean virgin, but it's much more likely, and, and frankly, the word occurs much more often, to simply mean young woman, right? And frankly, at that time, the, we don't think that the birth of Jesus happens until, you know, seven centuries later. So there's no reason to think that that's what's being talked about here. It's probably just a young woman who is conceiving and bearing a son, and then his name is Emmanuel. And so the, the easiest interpretation to come to is just him saying, listen, here's your sign. Your sign for the trustworthiness of God is simply that young ladies are still going to get married, they're still going to give birth, and, and that will be proof that God is with us right? Historical, grammatical, method, and we're done. The problem is that that's not possibly what that means. And we know it's not possibly what it means because what? Because Matthew comes along and says that's not what it means. So you get these ideas of historical grammatical. If we just follow this method, we can get there. And, and it does, does, doesn't work. So a man named Crawford Howard Howell, Howell, Toy. Does anybody know who Toy is? Toy is was very close to being married to somebody that we talk about every single year for like a whole month, Lottie Moon. So Lottie Moon was almost married to this gentleman, and this is one of the reasons why she looked at him and said, nah, I'll pass, hard pass after a while. Um, 
This is one of the things that Toy writes. He's talking about Jesus and how Jesus interprets the Old Testament and our interpretations of what happens in the Old Testament. And he says this, what happens in the New and Jesus' own interpretations, he says, we must compare them with the original passages. So Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament and he's talking about how do we analyze what Jesus is saying about the Old Testament. We must compare them, that is Jesus' interpretation, to the original passages interpreted according to what we hold to be the best canons of hermeneutical science. He knows he uses that word science, which is brilliant. The comparison must be made with all caution, humility, and reverence, but the science of hermeneutics must be the final authority, even if it should seem to us to come into conflict with him. Right? And you can see why Lottie was like, see ya. I'm not, I'm not dealing with that stuff. So he says, even if it, if it opposes the interpretation that Jesus gives, the science of hermeneutics, because it's science, is more sure. To take any other position out of reverence for his person would be to deny his spirit and forget his teaching. It's out of reverence for Jesus that we say that Jesus was wrong. That is, that is quite the thing. Now, the, the deal is that this sort of idea follows along. We still teach this in seminaries, by the way. The importance of the historical grammatical method was what I was taught and what I taught until, I don't know, I wrote about it. And then when I had to write a dissertation, I started with that perspective and then found you just can't hold it. It's not the way Paul interprets the Bible. It's not the way Jesus interprets the Bible. It's the way no one in the New Testament handles the Bible that way. None of them do. It's not that it's always wrong. It can be really helpful. But instead of using a method, what the early church talked about and the medieval church talked about was not the method that was used, because they would use many methods of interpreting Scripture. It wasn't the method, it was the goal. So they had something that they called the rule of faith. The rule of faith basically just says, you should end in Jesus, If you have an interpretation of Scripture that doesn't finish off, that doesn't end with you thinking that God has given us this passage of Scripture to point us to Christ, then you've done it wrong. It doesn't matter the method that you use so much as the end result is the same. So instead of thinking about method, it's more like an eye exam. So if you have an eye exam and you know the word that's written there as cat, what you are doing is switching the lens until you find the one that puts that cat in focus. And the best interpretation, according to the rule of faith, is always the one that keeps Jesus as the focus. Now, sometimes that is going to be a bright neon sign that is blinking in the dark so that you can't possibly miss it, okay? Think of Isaiah chapter 7. Sometimes it's just a dude that kind of winks at you and nods, right? It's really subtle, and it's not like overly there, but he's kind of saying, you know, look at Jesus. Like he's not, he's not... It's not always the most obvious thing, but that's how the church has long since handled these things. And it's not that people who interpret, interpret the Bible like Toy does, it's that they don't. So most of the faithful interpreters that we have, who are Southern Baptists, who say historical grammatical is the way we ought to go about doing things, don't actually do that. They just don't do that. One of the best evangelical commentaries on the book of Exodus, I looked it up, you know, kind of doing some some research before I bought commentaries. I buy the commentary. As I go through the commentary, that commentary doesn't mention Jesus at all. Like at no point in time in the commentary does it say, this tells us about Jesus. 
And evangelicals are like, that's a really good commentary. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's helpful on the details, but it's not a commentary on the text. It's a commentary on method. That's what he cares about. Because the commentary on the text, faithfully, by the rule of faith, leads you to Jesus. So again, Descartes, little phrase, right? Big implications for what happens to the church from that point on. That wasn't bad. You guys are mostly awake. Okay. That brings us then to spiritualism. Now, again, rationalism has its place. We need to see that it has its place. We don't want to be irrationalism, right? That doesn't seem like that's a good way to go. But it doesn't mean that we're rejecting rationality. We are rejecting it as the basis of what we build our faith on or the basis of what reality is. Okay, we can't, we can't do that. The second idea is spiritualism. Spiritualism is the exact same thing, only in completely the opposite direction. So where rationalism denies scripture in favor of the way in which all human beings can reason to a place, spiritualism is going to deny scripture because the spirit has spoken to me. So instead of this universalism, it is this rampant individualism that you don't need other people, you don't need scripture, you just need the spirit of God working in you. Um, One of the first people to come up with this was a man by the name of Jacob Boehm, um, B-O-E-H-M-E, I think you pronounce that Boehm. I grew up in this incredibly religious family, which everyone did at the time. He apprenticed to be a cobbler. Um, Very early on, he began to have visions, and um, eventually he was released from his apprenticeship as a cobbler because the guy who he was apprenticing under just got sick of hearing about his visions, and he says, I wanted to take an apprentice, not a prophet, and so he kicked him out. And so Bame goes around, and he basically is this this wandering cobbler um, as he, he goes around, and he basically continues to have these visions, and he comes to some conclusion, kind of keeping this to himself. He comes to conclusions, some of which are pretty random and unhelpful, and he has more visions, and finally he settles at this town of Gerlitz in Germany um, at the age of 35, and he eventually comes around to claiming that what he is writing is a direct dictation of what God says. Not, this is a direct dictation of what I think God is saying to me to kind of soften the blow, but he's like, that Muhammad guy and me, we're like simpatico, right? So Muhammad thought, what I'm writing down is exactly the dictation of what God has spoken through the prophet Gabriel. I think it's Gabriel. Um, And what Baim said is even worse than that, because he's just like, yeah, God spoke directly to me, and I'm just writing that thing down. Um, Eventually, the magistrates get a hold of him saying this and say, you're out you're gone. They were going to try him for heresy and burn him. The problem was that they couldn't tell what he said was wrong. And and there's a reason why. There's a reason. (laughs) It's not because what he said was like, oh no, this is really true. It was because the writing was so incomprehensible that they couldn't pin him down on what is wrong. Like he was just using metaphors all over the place. And they looked at it and they're like, this is gibberish. I don't know how we can convict him on heresy when we don't have the faintest idea of what he's saying. And so, um, but believe it or not, this guy gets a following. Um, he starts to lead people to, to really trust in their, the work of the Spirit in them, in the kind of visions and, and leadership that the Spirit provides to them, and in all of this, that that, that is the right way to live the Christian life. Um, he would argue that because Paul says that the letter kills, that we should avoid 
worrying about Scripture, and we should listen to the, the work of the Spirit in us, which is weird because he's using Paul to deny Paul. Like, he's saying, we can listen to the, the Word of God so long as it says that Word doesn't matter, and then we can jettison it, and then we've got to listen to the Spirit in us. This is a quote from Bame. I have enough with the book that I am. If I have within me the Spirit of Christ, the entire Bible is in me. Why would I wish for more books? Why discuss what is outside while not having learned what is within me? Um, there's a good reason. So the reason being that that voice that is speaking to you could be the voice of God. It could also just be a bad burrito that you ate the night before. It could, be, it, it could very well be schizophrenia. I mean, when you start having visions as a young man, like the question you ought to ask is, why am I having these visions and no one else is, right? Uh, he doesn't ask that question. So again, this sort of option is just a jettisoning, a jettisoning of the, the stuff that's going on in the church and the dogmatism and the reliance on the, the letter, which isn't unifying anybody and just everybody just do their thing. This eventually makes its way to England and uh, a man named George Fox kind of takes this up. He is, again, a cobbler, um, which makes you wonder if what kind of chemicals cobblers were handling. Uh, seems like it would just be nails and, and little hammers, but apparently it was more. Um, he, he grows up in a pretty religious family in England, and he looks around and he sees just the licentiousness of the people of England and the, the sort of rote worship that's happening in the Church of England, and he just he gets fed up with it. So um, England at this time is actually decently tolerant. There's a lot of different ways in which uh, English people are going about their worship of God. And so he's going to these different places of worship. And he's, he's watching how they're handling themselves, watching how they're, they're treating one another, watching how they're, they're handling the word of God. Um, and he did, for what it's worth, much more than BAME, seemed to know the Word of God. He studied Scripture quite a bit. He understood um, a lot of it. it. People even claimed, although I think that this is false, that he had uh, all of it memorized. Um, but in the end, after visiting all these places, he decided that everything in England was apostate um, and that their worship was just an abomination before God. And he couldn't find anything that wasn't wrong with the church in England. So paying pastors to... to present the word of God to people and to do the sacraments, as Paul says, is right in 1 Corinthians and, and in other places. He says, no, that's wrong. Um, having hymns, hymns are wrong. Uh, having orders of worship, wrong. Sermons, wrong. Sacraments, creeds, wrong and wrong. Everything is wrong. Even having people that you call ministers is wrong. The worst thing was that they had these places they called churches, and he said, it's just a house with a steeple. You are all so wrong. He, had, he thought that the idea of total depravity was a sin against God, primarily because it denied God's love for humanity, um, and that you still have this inner light within you, and that you can follow it. This guy was, he took the semi out of semi-Pelagian, um, and he basically said, like, even pagans can be saved because they've got this inner light, okay? Um, he was, frankly, kind of a jerk. So he would go, even though, even though I don't think his followers are known as being that way, he would go to these religious worship services, and he would stand up in the middle of them 
and begin to berate the people who are there and the practices of the people who are there, saying, you all are doing all of this wrong. So he would just randomly show up. And again, so the people like bemoan, well, he was persecuted. Listen, the dude would stand up, interrupt a worship service. They would drag him outside, and he became famous for it. He would do this time and time again. So after a while, he started to get beaten up for it, right? I mean, there was, that's not okay, but what he was doing was just incredibly foolish. Like, like, you don't need to do that. And so he would just show up at these services. He would stand up at some point in time, blither on, and, of course, people followed him. Um, his followers were so taken up with the Spirit, he called them friends, but they were so taken up with the Spirit that they would sometimes quake, and so they became known as Quakers. That was sort of a pejorative title that stuck. Um, at this point in time, I don't think it had anything to do with oats, but nevertheless, that came in later. Um, one of his chief followers was a man named William Penn, whom the crown owed a great deal of money to. Um, and instead of paying him, Penn said, listen, this is what you're going to do. Just give me an allotment of land in the New World. And so they gave him an allotment of land, which becomes known as Pennsylvania, which is where he takes a good number of his followers, and they land there. Um, and he, he is... He, he is a, an interesting bloke. Um, when he shows up at Pennsylvania, he doesn't call it that yet, but when he shows up at his allotment of land in the New World, um, he believes that the Indians who are there have a rightful claim to that land, even though the crown has sold it to him. And he um, begins to, he's from an aristocratic family, so he's got cash. He begins to pay the Indian folk who are there uh, for the rights to use their land. So he believes that it's their land, and he's paying them money to use their land, and he is also treating them as though they're equals and, and, and um, working with them to form governments and things like that and, and making sure that the way in which they are interacting with the Indians is not by force but by consent. And he actually has an incredibly good relationship with the Indian tribes that are around that place, and they did sell him the land, and, and they did move along their way. So it was quite an interesting thing, much different than the way anybody else was going to handle that stuff. Um, he calls the, uh, the capital of his experiment what? Philadelphia. And why? What does it mean? City of brotherly love. Phila, love, Adelphia, which is actually a city of sisterly love because Adelphia is feminine, but the cities are feminine, so we don't understand because we're English and we don't use gendered language. But um, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and the whole point of that is that they were the brethren. Um, Quakers have very weird traditions. They will, they will gather together. Everyone's equal. If you feel led by the Spirit, you can stand up and you can talk. If you don't feel led by the Spirit, then you just sit there. It goes on for hours. Uh, women, as much as men, are allowed to stand up and talk and say anything that they think is right and true as they're led by the Spirit of God. Um, there's very little, um, very little is not the right word. There is no organization, um, and, and I'm sure that for a lot of people, there's no end to the thing, because you could just sit there on a, on a wooden bench for hours, just being quiet and thinking that you're worshiping God. So um, the Quakers existed, and again, what you see is that this is the exact opposite. So the Quakers do more than a lot of the other spiritualists at the time, or those who follow this sort of spiritualism. It's still rampantly individualistic, and I don't know what they do when people who are part of their like little friend circle says things that are just outside the pale, right? If somebody gets up and says, I don't want to talk bad about old people, but, 
you know? And that, you know that anytime you say, I don't want to do something, and then you say the word but, that means you're going to do it, right? So I don't want to be a racist, but that next sentence is going to be bad. And so what happens when somebody does that? I'm not sure. But they... <laughs> um, but they don't seem to have much of an organization. They don't seem to have much of a way of, of kind of parting through what is good, but they did focus a lot on community. They focused a lot on um, really carrying out the commands of Scripture and loving one another, of helping one another, and that allowed them, even though they were very individualistic in, in the way that they felt the Spirit moved in people, that kept them kind of bonded together as a, as a unity. The other spiritualism uh, folks just didn't get very far, and the reason why they, they didn't last very long is because there was literally no reason for anyone to be conjoined to anyone else. You just don't need other people. Um, and again, you can see how this is a contemporary problem in the church. People don't think that they need other people. Um, people in America think that, you know, and, and they, you know, you can look at Bame and you can say, he took it really far. He was just denying scripture. But you and I both know people who think that they have no need for the church because they have the Spirit of God. I can read the words of the Bible. I have the Spirit of God in me. What do I need those other local yokels for? I don't, I don't need to be helped by them. I don't need to be taught by them. I don't need them. And, and the church has long since said, oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Everybody needs other Christians because you have not, as I, as I like to say, the Spirit of God by his own sovereignty has chosen to leave you bereft of things you need so that... Because you have the Spirit, he doesn't give you everything you need so that you would be connected to other people who also have the Spirit. That's why the church exists as one body. Um, so in both of these responses, we get bad responses to the, um, the way in which the church has been overly dogmatic about things. The, the way in which Wesley is going to respond is going to be different. Wesley's going to respond by saying, what we need is not dry doctrine, but lived doctrine, and it's what we call pietism, which is this sense of faithfulness, okay? And so what he's going to say is we, we're not going to read Scripture primarily so that we can understand the doctrine of Scripture. We are going to read Scripture in order to devote ourselves to what Scripture says, okay? That is the good response. So Wesley has a, a good response. Um, and again, we don't have to agree with all of his doctrine to see that, that that type of response to dogmatism is a much more faithful response than saying, I know what's good, I don't need scripture, or saying, the Spirit's in me, he knows what's good, I don't need scripture. Uh, Wesley does a much better job, but we'll talk about him uh, next week. Um, any, any questions? Sorry, I, had a, I wanted to get through stuff before we took any questions. So any questions on either of those things? Yeah. Um, Fox came much later. I think Fox was in the 17th century. Um, Bame would have been in the late 16th, early 17th. So it's kind of like they span 100 years or so. Fox, I believe, is born when Bame dies, the year that Bame dies. And that might have been in the early part of the 1600s. So you're, you're getting closer to the 1700s. Um, and then Penn is one of his followers. And so you're, you're again moving into the 1700s, into the colonies in, in North America. By the time we get to Wesley, who's going to be further removed, the colonies are going to be well-established because he's going to spend a lot of his life in America. Well, in the colonies. It won't be anachronistic. They were ours even before they were ours. So, yeah. This was still during, the Fox was still during the Church of England, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Any other questions?
Rule of faith for the win, by the way. No? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, brother. So, are we saying that some of the idea of rationalism was in okay? Well, rationalism is not an okay thing. But in rejecting the idea that all true knowledge can only come through method and reason doesn't mean, that's the rejection of rationalism is the idea that all true knowledge comes through either reason or method. And method is just the, the rigorous application of reason, right? So you get people like Sherlock Holmes, right? Uh, Sherlock Holmes has this kind of like, oh, you can just deduce everything. Yeah, okay, not really. Um, you just, life doesn't work like that. It works like that because Arthur Conan Doyle can write it like that, but real life doesn't work like that. So, um, what we're rejecting is that you can boil down all true knowledge to something that, that is the application of reason for. We're not saying that reason is not a part of acquiring true knowledge. That's, that's the difference. Like, we, we do believe that you need to, up, like, so again, when we interpret Isaiah 7, we're not not applying reason to it. We're just applying a different sort of reason to it. That reason is the rule of faith. This is speaking to us about Jesus. That happens to be a big flashing neon sign about Jesus, but all of Scripture speaks to us about Jesus. That's, that's a, a basis that we are then reasoning out as we read Scripture. So we're not against using reason. We're just against saying that is the foundational and basis for all knowledge, which is what rationalism does. And that, by the way, bleeds directly over into scientism. So it's the idea that reason through the method of science is what truly gives us wisdom and knowledge, and nothing else does. Yeah, yeah. You should be a reasonable creature. Yeah, and I, I mean that seriously. Like using your using the, the gift that God has given to you of reasoning through things is important when you read Scripture. It, it's it's not unimportant. No, no less than it is during the the course of your day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, and that's a faithful way. Again, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I was going, my teachers were very faithful. I don't want to make it sound like they're not. When I was going through and writing sermons, when I took sermon classes, they would uphold Spurgeon as the greatest of all preachers, at least that we, can, we, we know much of. John Chrysostom probably gives him a run, but we, we think of him as the prince of all preachers. And I, I would swear up and down that if I found an old Spurgeon sermon and I did point by point the very thing that Spurgeon did in that sermon, I would fail in those classes. So they, they up, I'm thinking of one teacher in particular, he upheld him as the thing, but because his method wasn't the method of my teacher, I wouldn't have passed the class if I had preached like Charles Spurgeon. Now, you can't distill Chuck down into simply the points on the page. He quite clearly knew how to be eloquent and how to speak to people, which is part of his draw. Um, but there is this overemphasis on, and you read preaching books, you, you can find this, there's this overemphasis on method. You do this, 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 sermon is there for you. So we still do it a lot today, yeah.
And Amen. And and you get and and scripture itself, please, like as soon as you say that, you, you think through First Corinthians, and Paul's saying, We preach foolishness. We're not preaching what they think is, is reasonable. What's reasonable is power overcomes by power. But what Jesus has done is overcome by laying down his life. That seems inherently unreasonable and it seems inherently wrong. And that's why we believe in the rule of faith. We don't believe in reason. We believe that what we are given as an answer is the answer and that we interpret everything by that answer. We know what word is written. We just need to find the right lens to, to get us there, right? So, amen. That's a perfect example. Oh, I thought you were talking about the other Josh over there. I thought he was... Yeah. Right, right. God's, God's logic is his own. And it's not our logic. And, that's, and Luther had that already down, right? So this, was, this goes back to Luther's um, understanding of a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. And what he saw in the church and what rationalism is is a theology of glory. It's things work according to power, things work according to reason, things work according to how we make sense of them. And his whole point is God doesn't almost ever work like that. He is almost always doing things that overturn what you expect. So, yeah, rule of faith for the win. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your spirit. We don't want to deny either the work of the spirit in us, and we certainly don't want to deny, um, well, actually, we don't want to deny the work of reason in us, and we certainly don't want to deny the work of the spirit in us. We, we can't understand the truth of your word without the, the Spirit searching the deep things of God and bringing those to our attention. Um, even if we can get the understanding of the words right, Father, the import of them, the work of uh, that word in us cannot happen outside of the gift of your Spirit. Um, we know, Father, that our reason can only do so much and that it oftentimes leads us astray. So we pray, Father, that we will be led by your Spirit, guided by your Spirit through your word to help us understand what is good and true and right, to help us praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he might be glorified above all things. We thank you for this day and ask for your blessings on us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.